On October 31, the church will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Also, 2017 is the 125th anniversary of Kenilworth Union Church. So in honor of those two anniversaries, Joe and Katie and I are preaching a sermon series this fall called Stained Glass. And we're using the windows in this room as visual aids for what we're talking about. And my conceit, our conceit, of course, is that the global church, not to mention Kenilworth Union, are both mosaics. They're made up of many puzzle pieces. And if one of those little slivers of glass were missing, we'd have a gap-toothed smile. It takes all of us. So uh, this is all listed. Where we've been and where we're going is listed on page 8 in your bulletins, in case you want a road map. Last week, we... Uh, preached a sermon called Why I Am a Theist, Why I Believe in God, and this week, Why I Am a Christian. And we look at the Gospel of John, which has the New Testament's most expansive understanding of who Jesus is, including this passage from John 14, which Jesus speaks the night before he dies. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So to be a Christian means to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, born to an unmarried peasant in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and executed roughly 30 years later for blasphemy and sedition by Pontius Pilate, was the unique, definitive, and unrepeatable manifestation of the Creator who threw the whole show across the stage in the first place. What Christians mean to say is that in Jesus, we encounter the reality and personality of God more intimately and transparently than anywhere else in the universe and at any other point in human history. And we get a lot of this from the Gospel of John, who has the most expansive understanding of who Jesus is, including this large text from John 14, from the night before Jesus dies, which seems a little strident, doesn't it? Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not a way, a truth, and a life, but the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Jesus sounds a little bit like Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger before he became Pope Benedict XVI, right? When Pope Benedict said that all religions except Christianity are gravely deficient. So why do I subscribe to this extravagant hypothesis? Why should I be a Christian? Well, there are a number of obvious but inferior reasons to be a Christian. There's the genetic reason, for instance. Maybe I believe because it's just sort of endemic to my personality. Maybe I am sort of genetically credulous. Maybe I believe whatever you tell me. 
that babies are born to virgins and then grow up to turn water into wine and heal the sick and raise the dead and then walk out of their tombs themselves after brutal execution. Maybe faith is like left-handedness, right? You don't learn it. You don't discover it. You're just born with it. You just are. Maybe I was born with the faith gene and there are others who were born without the faith gene and they grow up to be agnostics. One of the characters in a Woody Allen movie, I think it's Crimes and Misdemeanors, says, faith is like perfect pitch. Either you have it or you don't. You can't learn perfect pitch. You can't earn it. You just have it or you don't. Maybe I believe in God. Maybe I'm a Christian because I'm natively credulous. But then when I look at myself a little more closely, I discover that that's not me. I'm actually quite skeptical. I don't believe in UFOs. I don't subscribe to the National Enquirer. I don't think World Wrestling Federation is an honest sport. I don't believe the inauguration in January was the largest ever. I don't believe that the Virgin Mary pops up with unnerving frequency to give private messages to a few lucky Catholics. I didn't believe the Cubs could ever come back from a 3-1 deficit in the series last fall till I saw it with my own eyes. I don't believe a Major League Baseball team can win 22 straight games in 2017. That is impossible. I don't even believe my wife when she tells me I'm cute, but I want you to know she does. So there has to be more to this than the genetic reason because I'm natively skeptical, yet I believe in God. So maybe there's the accidental reason, right? Maybe there's no reason more complicated that I am a Christian than that I was raised in a Christian home. And if I had not been raised in a Christian home, I simply would not be Christian. Maybe faith is like language, right? You speak English because it was the lingua franca of your household. You don't choose it, you inhale it. You ingest it. You never consider any alternative other than English till they teach you Spanish in the sixth grade. And by the time you're 12 years old, it's too late to get English or faith out of your system, out of your head. So for the rest of your life, you dream in English and your aspirations are Christian. Faith is like language. You absorb your religion from your home. That's possible. I won't argue with you on that point. I won't dispute the point that 99% of the world's religious people will die in the faith that they were born into. Converts are very, very rare. You know this. Now, that might be a popular reason to believe, the accidental reason. It might be the only reason some of us do believe, but it is an inferior reason because, as it is often nicely put, God has no grandchildren. Right? That is to say, you're not related to God on your mother's side. A derivative or secondary relationship with God is no relationship at all. And so that's why Katie and Sylvie and Bev spend so much time with our ninth graders during the confirmation season. That's what this confirmation thing is all about. Because 15 years ago, when these kids were six months old, their parents made a presumptive choice about what their life would look like for the next 15 years without even asking them. Their parents decided that their lives would be Christian until they got into the ninth grade. And then it would become their own decision. 
And so next spring, when they've completed confirmation, these kids will stop being God's grandchildren and become God's children. They will make their parents' faith their own. That's what confirmation is. God has no grandchildren. But why make this faith your own, right? If these kids were to ask you on the way out of church this morning, why should I be confirmed? Why should I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? What would you say? Well, I think there are a couple of better reasons than the genetic reason and the accidental reason. There's the church reason, right? That is to say, how do you explain the existence of this robust, life-giving institution? unless God had something to do with it. The Roman Empire collapsed and disappeared. The church is still here. The British Empire shrunk and disappeared, but the church is still here. The American Empire will one day shrink under pressure from without or within and disappear, but the church will still be here. Mark my words, the church will still be here till the end of time. Does God have something to believe that, to do with that? First Methodist Church of Greenwich was a block away from my church in my last town. Ken Kiefer, the pastor at First Methodist of Greenwich, was a good friend of mine. He had the best sermon titles in town. I was green with envy. Every day of my life, I had to drive past Ken's blasted sermon sign in the front yard of his church, and every time I did, I suffered a daily crisis of professional self-confidence because I could never have sermon titles as good as Ken. And so one year on the Sunday after Easter, there was Ken's sermon title on the church sign in his front lawn. And it read like a newspaper headline. It said, Christ's body found. Now, what was Ken going to tell his congregation that morning? That they'd somehow discovered the desiccated remains of Jesus of Nazareth and that he had not, in fact, raised from the dead? I doubt it. I think what Ken probably told his congregation that morning was that the world had noticed the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is among the likes of you. And they did this into the teeth of a robust, severe persecution, humiliation, torture, death, and banishment. Is it so outlandish to believe that they did this because they truly met the risen Christ on their own Damascus or Emmaus roads? They might have been wrong, but they weren't lying, right? People will die for a mistake, but not for a hoax. Blaise Pascal said, I prefer those witnesses who get their throats cut. That is to say, if your life depends on it, you're going to tell the truth as you know it. You might be mistaken about it, but you're not going to lie at that point. And I think God has something to do with this robust institution called the Christian church. One more. After the genetic and accidental and church reasons to be a Christian, there's the beautiful reason. What I mean to say is that after reading the gospel, you discover that there could never be a more beautiful human existence than his. I mean, if you can't find divinity in Jesus, where are you going to look? This is an extravagant hypothesis, this doctrine of the Incarnation. But maybe the church ascribed divinity to just this life because there was no other way to explain it. It was so winsome and so unique that it was terrestrially inexplicable. He must have come from somewhere else. 
and returned to the same place after he'd lived his earthly existence and delivered his heavenly message. We don't know that it's true that he came from God, but we know that it's good, his life. And what other life is more deserving of your most loyal allegiance than his? Even if he's just a great man and not God of God and light of light and very God of very God, as the old creed puts it, even he, if he isn't all of that, what other life are you going to recapitulate in your own? Jesus is what I want to put on. Jesus is what I want to pretend to be. The young actor Hayden Christensen plays Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars films. Anakin Skywalker, of course, is the Jedi Knight who gives in to the dark side of the Force and grows up to be Darth Vader. In the first five Star Wars movie, an actor named David Prowse played Darth Vader partly because David Prowse is six feet, eight inches tall. But for the sixth Star Wars film, Revenge of the Sith, Hayden Christensen convinced George Lucas to make Hayden his own Darth Vader costume. I'm Darth Vader, he reasoned. I want to be Darth Vader. And so they did. They made him his own Darth Vader costume, and they put extensions in it so that he could be six feet, eight inches tall. And... During or after the filming, an interviewer asked Hayden Christensen what it feels like to put on that rasping breathing machine and that ominous mask and that black armor every day. What does that feel like? And he says, you walk with a little more confidence. People notice it. There's a dark and mysterious power to that mask. After a while, I started thinking, I am Darth Vader. You are what you wear. You are what you pretend to be. Whom do you wear? Whom do you pretend to be? I want to wear Jesus. I'm a Christian because that stupid little hackneyed question, WWJD, what would Jesus do, has never led me astray. And as I look around the world and I watch other people asking themselves that stupid, hackneyed little question, what would Jesus do? I want to be like that. I know a captain of industry, a loyal Baptist, who turned down tens of millions of dollars because it would mean he would have to sell his company to strangers who would let his loyal employees go. I know an Episcopalian who takes the generous bonus, his board rewards him with every year and doles it out to the 100 lowest paid employees at his firm because they never get bonuses or raises. I know a 12-year-old Catholic boy who rears up in scary but righteous indignation when his classmates make fun of the Down syndrome kid who sits next to him in class. I know a man who retired at the age of 45 to work 50 hours a week for the Red Cross for free for nothing, for everything. I was at my last church for 17 years, and during a long tenure like that, staff members come and go, are here and then gone. But for a brief, wonderful window of time, I had an all-star staff. Maybe not quite as good as this staff, but almost. It was such a happy time in my career. 
Uh, on my staff, I had a Joan, a Judy, a Jim, and a Josh. And so you know how much I love alliteration. So I would boast to my congregation about my ministry team, my stellar ministry team of Joan, Judy, Jim, Josh, and Jesus. Except that Josh was Jesus. He was the son of a Baptist preacher, the most infallibly honest, relentlessly kind, and self-giving person I've ever... He was incorruptible. He refused to take credit for his multiple successes and yet insisted on taking the blame for everybody else's mistakes, including mine. I don't know how many times Josh stepped in front of one of his colleagues to take a verbal bullet for them. And I always reminded myself that that's what Mother Mary called her firstborn son, Josh. Because Jesus, after all, is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So I'm a Christian because I want to be like Josh, Josh of Greenwich, or Josh of Nazareth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus to his disciples. Not a way, a truth, and a life, the way, the truth, the life. That's an extravagant and strident claim. Mine is more modest. I don't say the way, the truth, the life. I, see, I say my way, my truth, and my life. It's more modest, but it seems also kinder and wiser in this tiny little world where our neighbors have alternative commitments, right? And then, once we've seen God's glory precisely in Jesus, maybe we'll learn to look for God in other places. That's the way the Episcopalian priest, Barbara Brown Taylor, sees it. She says, having beheld God's glory in Jesus, we might find ourselves better equipped to recognize God's glory all over the place, including in places where it's not supposed to be, like a Lakota sweat lodge or a Hindu temple during the Festival of Lights or on the rim of a Hawaiian volcano. Once we've learned from Jesus what God really looks like, then we know what to watch for, and we might find God everywhere. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.